Well, one of my first jobs was working in a bookstore, and if you, if you know me, you know I love books. If you've ever been to my office, you, you know I love books. If you've been in my house, you know I love books. And so working in a bookstore was a great joy for me. Um, also, if you know me well, you know that I will offer advice before people ask for it. Um, <laughs> so I, I like to share my opinions, and I tend to be opinionated. I offer a lot of unsolicited advice, and I like books. And so this made for a very pushy salesman in a bookstore. I would see somebody in a certain section of books, and I would go there and be like, oh, you're looking at the wrong one. This is the one you need to look at. This is the way better book. And, and I'd be able to sell them that book, and then they'd be in a different section somewhere else, and I'd say, oh, you, you need, what else are you interested in? And I'd strike up conversations, and I was constantly selling books. And bear in mind, I didn't get paid commission for this. I could have been standing behind the counter doing nothing, but I just love giving people the right book to read so they're not reading the wrong book. Well, one day there was this guy who was uh, from the States. This was when I was working in South Africa. He was from the States, middle-aged guy, well-dressed. He was in the, the section looking at coffee table books uh, about Africa, African wildlife, and he was looking at the wrong books, as people usually do. So I came and I struck up a conversation with him and asked him what he was looking for and what he was doing in town and, and said, listen, you, you can't buy that book that you've been looking at. There's a way better one. And I showed him and I explained why, because there were action shots or whatever it was. And he seemed quite amused by me. He kept like looking at me funny while I was talking to him. Anyway, eventually he bought this expensive coffee table book and he came back the next day and he said, listen, I'd like to offer you a job working for my international company. And I was very surprised and very flattered. And I was like, a job doing what? Uh, and he said, to be a salesman for my company. You're obviously a very good salesman. And, and I thought, you know, I guess I am. I, yeah, I mean, he's seeing this raw potential in me. I must be a great salesman if this person who deals with salespeople says so. And so he, uh, he said, well, why don't you... Uh, come by and we made an appointment and he was going to tell me about the company and everything and when I got there it was a company that sold chemicals and I said I can't sell I can't work for you I can't do this and he said why do you have like an environmental um, problem with you know chemicals and I was like no it's because I hate chemicals I mean I don't know anything about them I don't I'm not, I can't get passionate about them like I, this is not he said no 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 I've seen you sell books you could sell, uh, he said, you could sell ice to an Eskimo. And uh, this was before that was politically incorrect to use that term. Um, and I said, no, but that's because I like ice. And I use ice. And I know ice. Uh, I, I can't sell things. I mean, as soon as there's a financial incentive for me, I feel guilty. I feel like I'm trying to trick someone into doing something, firstly. And secondly, I can only get somebody to... to want the product if I like the product, you know, so it ended up not, I mean, I tried, I tried for a month, and then the first time I had my, like, um, whatever it was, sales report with the guy, I had sold exactly zero of the product, and he, he then said, yeah, no, you're not a good salesman, <laughs> and, um, but if you've, you've heard me recommend restaurants, you've heard me recommend podcasts, and books, and all these different things, and I never get a commission, because I just love to share what's, what's on my heart. I love to share what's, what's important to me and what I get excited about. And whenever you hear a sermon on evangelism, usually you, you walk out feeling like, that's good for him. He's the preacher because it's always the preacher that's preaching a sermon, right? And so that's why he became a preacher because he's good at evangelism, but he doesn't know how difficult it is for me. So I just want to let you know, I'm not good at evangelism. I'm not a good salesman. I can't, I can't pitch any of that stuff. All I know is 
that the more I know Jesus Christ and his word, the more I want to talk about him and the more I want to, to share him with others. And I know that that's the same for all believers. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, we're going to have a, a look today at the way Jesus dealt with the 72 evangelists that he sent out. And you have to remind yourself constantly that nobody ever got saved because the sales pitch was good. You always need the Spirit of God and the power of God at work in a person. And you're not in control of that. God is. Your job is to be faithful. So last week, we saw Jesus send these 72 evangelists out. Remember, we, some of your Bibles might say 70. It depends on the manuscript family that you prefer, etc. It's not important. Um, he sent a whole bunch of evangelists out, and he sent them out two by two. And he sent them into a, a Gentile region ahead of him, and then he was going to follow that up, right? And so we started off, there's kind of these the eight lessons we learned. And last week we saw four of them um, that we need to, these are hurdles we need to overcome to be effective evangelists. One is learn to play your part. Um, each person does a little bit. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to close the deal. You can plant the seed. Someone else will come and water and someone else plucks the fruit. As long as we're all being faithful to live a Christian witness and share the gospel, whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a mom teaching her kids, or if you work, play your part, and it's a, it's a team sport saving the world. Secondly, we saw pray for preachers, meaning pray that there would be more people who can do this full time. Um, Jesus said that, you know, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send more workers out. Uh, then we saw persevere in persecution, because Jesus specifically said, I'm, I'm sending you out like uh, lambs among wolves. Are you going to be persecuted for this? And that's part of the, the compelling nature of the gospel message is conveyed by the fact that people are willing to suffer in order to tell you the message. And so that's why there's suffering and persecution, because the more you suffer to tell the message to the people, the more they are likely to believe it. And then, uh, fourthly, we saw you need to purge all pride. And what he told these evangelists to do, which was different from when he sent out the, the 12 apostles later on, is that they were to take no money with them. Take no travel money. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Don't pack anything. Don't take a little backpack. Just show up in town and you will be completely at the mercy of the people that you are ministering to. Because that will mean that you're going to tell these Gentiles that they are wrong, and that their religion is wrong, but you're going to starve to death unless you can get them to feed you. So you're going to have to tell them this message from a position of humility and not a position of pride. And so whenever you cast yourself on the mercy of somebody, you deal with them a lot more humbly than you would if you thought that you're better than them. And that's how we always need to be when we share the gospel, is that we need to approach people from a position of humility and not one that we know something they don't know, right? So that's as far as we got. There's going to be four more. I'll give them to you now. Uh, prioritize for profit, proffer peace. You could just say offer peace, but then you lose the alliteration of the P. Um, proffer peace, uh, practice to preach, and pronounce peril. There you go. Um, and we'll get back to those as we go. So let me read for you again from verse 1, this time to verse 12. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way 
Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for you. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is said before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Okay, well, let's look at our next hurdle that we need to overcome. You need to learn to prioritize for profit. So here in verse 4, when Jesus said, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now, last week we looked at the money bag, the knapsack, and the sandals, and in the Q&A someone said, what about greet no one on the road? So to make sure we get it on record in the sermon, for those people who didn't watch the video all the way to the end, Jesus isn't being rude here. This isn't just if somebody's walking past you and they say, what's up, that you, you can't even look at them. Um, a Middle Eastern greeting is more than just, hey, how's it going? A Middle Eastern greeting was a, is a connection that involves relationship building. It involves time. And the point here is that Jesus is saying, I want you to get to your destination. I don't want you to make a bunch of friends on the way that when you get to the town, they're going to invite you to stay with them. That's not why I'm sending you there. I don't want to, because, you know, if you've ever been backpacking in Europe or something like that, you know, you meet other backpackers. Um, it's usually Australians, you know, and there's Australians, and there's Brits or whatever, and they're backpacking around, and you guys get together, and then one person says, oh, you know, my aunt so-and-so owns the slug and lettuce um, pub. Let's go spend the night there. And then everyone spends the night there, and you help each other. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't want you to make friends and a, a support network on the way. I want you to go two by two and be completely at the mercy of the people that you are ministering to. This is still actually in effect in the Middle East today. Um, this will help you interpret other verses in Scripture where, where we're told, for example, not to, to greet um, false teachers. Again, it doesn't mean you be rude to somebody and you don't even say hello to them. It's talking about this relationship building. So like when I was in Israel back in the day when you needed to go to an internet cafe, um, this was in the year 2000, and so I was looking for an internet cafe and I, there was this Arab guy kind of sitting there and I asked him, he was young, kind of guy that would know where an internet cafe is, and I asked him, where's the internet cafe? And he just kind of shrugged and sort of pretended he didn't speak English. And I remembered this lesson I'd heard in church about how Middle Eastern people like to be greeted properly. And so I apologized for just asking him the question, and I greeted him, and I introduced myself, and I asked him, how's he doing, and what does he do? And his eyes kind of lit up, and he started talking, and he, was he could speak English. And we were chatting and chatting, and we spoke for a few minutes. Eventually, he invited me into his own home, made me some coffee, and said, you can use my internet for free. So that's the difference between um, just a quick, hi, I need help from you, and hi, tell me about yourself. Let's, let's connect. And so 
that's how they are in the Middle East. And so Jesus is saying, that's going to be your instinct when you see other people walking by you on the road, is to connect with them and make friends with them and get to know each other and make each other coffee and help each other out. That's not what I want for you on this mission. On this mission, laser-like focus, go in and prioritize so that it can be profitable. So that's that. Um, Let's move on to the next one. Prefer peace. Proffer peace. Uh, You're going to offer peace to this person, verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. That's another customary Middle Eastern greeting. Shalom. It's still used today. Shalom means peace on your house. Verse 6. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. So this is an interesting instruction because the wish that somebody would have shalom was usually a greeting given between Jews, one Jew to another Jew, or a Samaritan to another Samaritan. But here, Jews going into a Gentile place and wishing peace upon their house is not something Jews would normally do. They they may use a different greeting, but Jesus is saying, no, I want you to use this greeting. Remember, we're building relationships here. You're bringing them the good news of peace. I want you to say peace. I want you to use that traditional greeting that we use among ourselves, we who are faithful followers of God. And the reason I find this interesting is because among Christians, there can be a tendency to be persnickety about our language. And what I mean by that is I've had someone tell me before, you know, if somebody sneezes, you can't say God bless you if they're an unbeliever because God will not bless them until they repent of their sins. (laughs) So you have to say, like, gesundheit. But you can say, bless you, if a Christian sneezes. And I've, you know, that's a little persnickety. Um, I've heard people use that kind of, like, don't say to somebody, Jesus died for your sins because technically he died to accomplish the salvation of the elect, and you don't know if the person's elect yet or not. I'm like, okay, grammar Nazi. Um, how about we stop being the grammar police on everybody, and you just, you, you just be friendly? And what Jesus is saying here is, when you enter the house and you say in verse 5, peace be to this house, if a son of peace is there. So remember that phrase I've taught you, a son of means of the nature of. If there's one of us there who is right with God, who is at peace with God, then it is an appropriate greeting and it'll land, you know, as it were. It'll stick. Um, but if not, it'll return to you. In other words, don't you worry about the mechanics of whether or, God, whether or not God's actually at peace with these people or whether or not he's actually going to save them and become at peace and reconcile with them. You just tell them, peace be to this house. You know why? Because it's polite. And sometimes Christians just need to be polite and not persnickety about their language. I think that's what's going on here. And he's saying, basically, if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. You're not responsible for that. Just go there and, and show your commitment to want to bring peace to these people. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Try to avoid cultural offenses. The gospel is offensive enough without you being obnoxious about it. The gospel is offensive enough without people being offended by your weirdness. Sometimes Christians get this idea that um, they can't, they don't want to send the wrong signal to unbelievers to make the unbeliever feel like they're at peace with God yet. That, that's, just, that's just not your role. 
Verse 7 says, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So he's saying when you get there and you're offering these people peace, even if they're unbelievers, even if they, they're serving you food that you wouldn't prefer to eat, there's more important things here. Um, you can eat and you can drink with them and you can enjoy that time. Don't you worry about the result. You worry about the mission. And he says here, the laborer deserves his wages. This is a cool verse because it's picked up by um, Paul in, I think it's 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy, where he quotes this verse as something, um, as scripture. He says, you know, they twist the scriptures and um, this is, he, he quotes this, this verse. So this is a verse that Luke wrote that Paul is already seeing as scripture. That's got nothing to do with the sermon. It's just a nice little connection. Um, something Luke wrote that Paul sees as scripture. But the labor deserves his wages. What he's saying here is, if they are feeding you, you deserve that food. Don't say, well, it's an unbeliever giving me food. They didn't accept the gospel, but now they're supporting my ministry, and I shouldn't take support from the ministry, for my ministry from them, because they're unbelievers. He's like, no, you deserve your wages. It doesn't matter where the money's coming from. This is a very helpful application for some Christians, too, who get very persnickety about where the money comes from for their ministry. It'll look like this sometimes, you know. Um, you know, my grandmother wanted to uh, give me $1,000 towards my missions trip, but she's a Mormon, and, or she's a whatever, an atheist. So I don't want to take her money for the missions trip, because I, I used to be the short-term missions coordinator at a big church, and we had to raise money, and sometimes the person would say, I didn't want to take my unbelieving grandmother's money, so I'm just short that thousand, can the church pay? And I'd say, no, go make the unbeliever pay. Um, you know, she's offering the money. Now, in that case, you don't deserve it. You haven't worked for it. But here, he's saying, you are missionaries. You are on a ministry, and I'm providing for you. God is providing for you through the generosity of other people, even if they're unbelievers. So don't say, well, no, I can't take, eat your food. I can't drink with you. I just need a couch to sleep on. He's like, no, this is, don't worry. This, again, don't you worry about the mechanics of how God deals with unbelievers. You do you. Okay, just be polite, be generous, be helpful, and it's not like atheist money has cooties on it anyway. Don't worry. Somebody once said to me, what if an unbeliever said that they wanted to give a million dollars towards the building fund? I would say, make the check out to Christ Fellowship Baptist Church and put it in the box. <laughs> I don't care that you're an unbeliever. I mean, think about it. Are you people who own stores and, you know, you have customers and that... Do you check every single customer that comes to you with any money and ask them for a profession of faith and see if they're a, um, a, a member in good standing at their church before you'll accept their money? Try run a 7-Eleven. No, before you take that stick of gum there, kid, tell me, uh, explain your professional faith in Jesus Christ to me. No, okay, well then I'm not selling it to you. Good luck with that. Not even Chick-fil-A does that, right? It's like... Plunder the Egyptians is what uh, Moses told the people, right? God's going to just give you the money. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Don't you worry about that. And then verse 8 says, Whenever you enter town and they receive you, eat what is said before you. Don't go from house to house looking for better food. Eat whatever they put in front of you. Don't ask about it. So you can imagine these people coming out of Judaism, coming into a home where the food's being offered. The first thing they want to ask is, is it kosher? 
So this is very countercultural. And this is going to become a bigger problem in Jesus' ministry as it goes on. But Jesus did not require his followers to stick to the rules that the rabbis had made about food. And he's, what he's saying here is, you know, I'm, I don't think he's saying you can eat unclean meat at this point in his ministry. But he's certainly saying, don't ask them for your conscience sake where the, where the food came from. But don't think, well, they definitely didn't wash their pots and pans the way we wash the pots and pans. So an application here is when you're on a mission and somebody serves you something, don't think about all your little dietary quirkiness. Think about the gospel. And yes, I preach these messages to myself too. And I too have got over my dietary quirkiness when the gospel was at stake, right? And um, in one case, we went on a missions trip to Japan and there was a very generous man uh, who wanted to take us, the whole team, out to a restaurant. His wife was a believer in the church. He was an unbeliever, and, but he wanted to kind of just, you know, be kind and generous to the team. And so he took us to this restaurant that was extremely expensive. And, uh, you know, they had a private room for us, and then we were served by geishas, and somebody told us this is the second best restaurant in all of Osaka, and this meal is going to cost thousands and thousands, and what the pastor told us when we went there is, it's considered very rude to not eat all the food. So that sounds fine, right? It was a 10-course meal of Japanese crazy food. Um, (laughs) The first course was the most edible of all of them, the most palatable course, and it was little baby fish raw with bulging eyes in rice. And it only got weirder from there until one of them, remember they took us into the kitchen to see them pull an eel, a live eel, out of the tank, rip its skin off, rip its spine out, Chop it up into pieces and put it on a plate. It was still twitching when I was holding the plate. I'm not exaggerating. But I, I knew this principle, so I just stinking ate it. And, um, <laughs> and we did. And we actually, we helped each other. People were passing food under the table and stuff. But between us, we all finished all of our food. Um, the one thing I couldn't do was, I just, the final course was dessert. And it looked like, it looked like a little Turkish delight with powdered sugar on, but it wasn't powdered sugar. It was fermented bean curd. Why? (laughs) Why for dessert? But anyway, so that one I just couldn't eat, and I just said it was because I was so full, it was fine. But anyway, so Jesus is saying, don't ask, you know, where the food's from, don't shop around, don't try to find the best Airbnb in town. Wherever you go, the first house you come to, just do it. Okay, so that's number two. Number three is practice to preach. So here he says in verse 9, heal the sick in it, in this town, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So think about what the instruction is. Step one, heal the person. Now that's a pretty cool thing to do. Imagine you were able to go to a town and find the sick people and heal them miraculously, instantaneously of their, their sickness. That would be a great ministry. But that's only half the instruction. The other half is, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, remember, the purpose of the healing is not to leave a town full of healthy people. The purpose of the healing is to gain a platform for the gospel. 
so that you can say to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus is coming. Remember, he sent them ahead because Jesus is coming. The offer of salvation is on its way. You guys have been chosen for this. This is a wonderful thing. Let me do healing to build credibility, to show you the power of God. But I'm not going to just stop there with the healing. I'm going to get you to the gospel. I'm sure you've heard people quote Francis Assisi, who said, always preach the gospel. If necessary, what? Use words. See what he's saying? Always preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. And I understand what he means. I'm not against that idea, you know, that we should always be living like Christians, that you don't even have to speak and people will notice that there's something different about you. But with all due respect to our older brother, Francis of Assisi, you, you do need to speak words. You can't preach the gospel without words. You, you can't do it. You, you should be living the gospel all the time so that you can preach it with words and have it come out with authority and, and with credibility. But you can't just say, well, I did these good deeds and I didn't tell anyone why. Well, that's, that's great. That's better than doing bad deeds. But, but you haven't done your mission. If your mission is to evangelize and to teach these people the gospel, you've stopped short if you've done some sort of service for them without linking it to the love of Christ. That's why Jesus, whenever he says he talks about doing service, like uh, giving a cup of cold water to the least of these, what does the rest of the verse say, though? In my name. You know, when did you do this, do this, do this? In my name. It's always as a Christian. I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. I'm doing this because... This is what Christ wants me to do. So that people are linking the service that you're doing with the character of God. Otherwise, you could just be a, a nun doing good works or a, a, a Buddhist monk doing good works or, you know, Rotary or the Lions Club. I mean, there's nothing wrong with these places, but they're not doing it in the name of Christ. We're different. We're Christians. We're sent out on a mission to tell people the gospel so yes, we meet their needs and we feed the hungry and we clothe the, the poor and we do what we can. And Christians throughout history have been the ones that build schools and teach literacy and build hospitals and, and bring health and well-being to societies and education and they build the universities. And yes, Christians do that, but then they also do all those things to preach the gospel. And so I've told you about a decision I had to make early on in my ministry in South Africa when a local um, AIDS hospice approached us for help to, uh, as a church, saying we, we, we need help with these patients who are dying of AIDS. And we said, absolutely, we want to help. Well, what can we do? And so they gave us all these things that they needed done. And they said, but listen, there's a stipulation. Because this is partly government-funded, you're not allowed to teach any of your religious beliefs there. So we said, so you want us to come and do all this ministry and not tell people about Jesus? Yes, you're not allowed to tell people about Jesus. So you want us to make people a little bit more comfortable as they're on their way to hell. And we just said, I'm sorry. We, we, would, we would love to do all of this ministry, you said, but the purpose of showing that love to the people is to be able to tell them at their most vulnerable time in their lives what their only true hope is. And if we can't do that, we're actually doing a disservice. And so we partnered rather with another organization that was not limited by the government, where we could do that, we could share the gospel as well. I don't know, that's a controversial decision, and maybe some people think we should have done it anyway, but I just believe very strongly that 
if you do something and you're not doing it in the name of Christ, you're missing the most important part of that ministry. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Romans 10.13, and that's talking about, well, people can't be saved unless someone actually says the words. So you have not evangelized if you have never said to a person the basic tenets of the gospel. You have to include the bad news. You are a sinner. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you deserve God's wrath. And you have to include the good news. But because God loves you, he made a way to repair that. And he sent his son, who did live that perfect life, offered himself as a substitute for you on the cross, so that whoever believes in Jesus and trusts in Jesus alone, instead of in themselves, will be saved from the wrath of God that they deserve. And then you'd call the person to repentance. As Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the grave for you, you need to turn your back on the sin that he paid for, so that you too can live forever by placing your faith in him. If you've never said that to someone, you've not evangelized. doesn't matter how many cups of cold water you gave to the least of these or how many dying patients you comforted. If you haven't told them that they're a sinner that needs a savior who died for them on the cross as a substitute and conquered the grave and that they need to repent of their sins, they haven't heard the gospel. So Jesus healed a lot, but he always preached. And here he's sending these evangelists and giving them this amazing ministry opportunity, but telling them you must preach. I always think of um, Launchpad 39A. Who's heard of 39A? Not 30A, not the beach. 39A. It's a launch pad in Florida. It was built in 1959. It was extremely expensive. It was the best launch pad built at that point, and nobody cared. It didn't even make the news. But every single person who owned a television all over the world tuned in 10 years later and looked at that launch pad and didn't even notice it because they were watching Apollo 11 take Neil Armstrong to the moon. You can't get Neil Armstrong to the moon without the launch pad, people. The launch pad is crucial. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't do mercy ministry or help dying patients or give a cup of cold water, or clothe the sick. I'm not saying that. You need that as well. But that's just the platform. If you build the platform and there's no rocket, you're kind of missing the point. You have to launch the gospel. So that's practice to preach. Let's look at the fourth and final one. Pronounce peril. Uh, this is a strange one, but look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, we're going to go into more detail about that concept of degrees of punishment and degrees of reward uh, next week. But for here, the point here is that the gospel message is not an invitation it's a command. We often, we often present the gospel like it's an invitation. 
for you to come to Christ. Of course, there's a sense in which you are inviting people to come to Christ, but the gospel itself, the message, is not an invitation that's optional. It's a command. You must repent of your sins. You must recognize Jesus Christ as God. You must place your faith in him. And if you don't, there will be consequences that you can't even imagine. You know, if a policeman invites you over to his house for a birthday party and you decline, that's okay. You might offend him, but you don't go to jail. If he tells you to get out of your car and take a breathalyzer test, you don't get to RSVP, no. You don't get to decline. You will be arrested. You see, some things are invitations and some things are commands. And Jesus' gospel message is a command, not an invitation. And so he told the 72 that if their audience rejects the offer, they must explain to their audience the dire consequences. Verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. This was a symbolic motion of saying that the uncleanness of your town, we're leaving behind. We don't even want your dust on us because you are, you are about to be destroyed by God. You and your whole town. It's going to be more bearable for Sodom. So think of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened is that God nuked the place. Fire and brimstone raining down from heaven and killed absolutely everyone, even the person who was escaping and looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. That's not me. I don't even want the dust on me. I'm not going to look back. I'm out of here if you reject this. There is no place in hell hot enough for you if you reject this. Why? Because you've heard the truth and rejected it. That's more than Sodom had. That's what we're going to look at later. But I, I want to drive this home. It's not unloving to tell people that if they reject Jesus, they'll bear God's wrath. It's not unloving. You can do it in a gentle way. You can do it in a kind way. But ultimately, that is an offensive message. Remember, I told you the gospel is offensive on its own. So don't be offensive about it. Be as kind and approachable as you can. But ultimately, it's not unloving. And, and this is why Ezekiel verse. Uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Ezekiel three seventeen, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have, been, you will have delivered your soul. So Ezekiel 3, verse 17 and following, God is saying, look, I'm sending you to this person with bad news. The bad news that they're wicked and that if they don't repent, there's this dire consequence of their destruction. And if you don't tell them that, they will die in their sins, and it'll be for their sins. That's not your fault. But I'm going to hold you responsible for not telling them the message the way I told you to. On the other hand, if you do tell them what I tell you to say, and you do warn them, and they still don't repent, then they're going to get the same punishment they would have all along, but you will be off the hook then because you've done what I told you to do. It's a really interesting concept that 
even when God sends a messenger to give bad news to somebody who might not even repent, there's two things going on. One is what God's dealing with that person and giving them warning and his grace that they were rejecting so that they were without excuse. And the other is testing your faithfulness. I don't want to give the bad news. Well, then you're in the wrong religion because our religion is a lot of bad news. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's born a sinner. Everybody sins. Nobody's good enough for heaven. That's, that's just bad news. No, you can't choose your chosen lifestyle. No, you can't pick your sexual orientation or your gender. Just anything the world wants to do. We're the party poopers that come along and say, nope, sorry, can't do that. Why? Because that's what God says. Bad news, bad news, bad news. But we're also the only ones with the true good news. The good news is, no matter what we've done, and we've all done something that deserves God's punishment, He has absorbed it Himself in His Son. And He makes it available for us. But if you don't tell people the bad news, the good news means nothing. Oh, Jesus loves you. Come as you are. That's not true. That's not true. Yes, He loves you, but if you come without repenting, you're going to get judged for that. You need to leave your sin behind you. So let me give you one line before we close. This is a line that I actually use on people who say things, if they say, well, that's fine for you, I just don't believe that. So if you do present the gospel, and the person rejects it, and they say, usually the, if, if it's been a friendly conversation, you get to the point where you've now explained the gospel to the person, you've called them to repentance, and they're, they're going to say no, they usually say no something like this. Just in my experience, people will say, either I need to think more about that, <laughs> But if they're going to say no to your face, they usually do it like this. That's fine for you to believe, but that's not what I believe. So it's kind of a postmodern idea. I, I really respect that you feel so passionately about this, because if you've done it right, they'll see that you're, you know, you're passionate and you, you, you really believe this. And they'll say, I, I'm happy for you, I respect that you, but that's not what I believe. Then this is what you say. You say, well, I respect that decision, but if you are wrong, and if I'm right, the consequences for you are dire and eternal. So please, take some time to think about it. And if you have any questions or any further investigation you want to do, please come to me. I'm willing anytime, day or night. It's just a good way to wrap up a conversation rather than, and now I'm going to knock the dust off my feet, you know. <laughs> but just in, in practice, you, well, you, you do need to leave them with that listen, thanks for respecting my view and then rejecting it, but if you're wrong, you're going to go to hell. So I don't want you to be wrong. I want you to think more about it. And then just remember, go back to point number one from all eight, is just play your part. You, you've planted that seed. You've watered it. You know, you've, you've done your faithful part. Back off and see what the Lord does. And often a person will sit with that. And if it is somebody that God is calling, the Holy Spirit will drive that home. You don't need to do it. Nobody ever gets saved by the eloquence of the presentation or the knowledge of the person preaching. It's always by the power of God. I'll, I'll close with this quote by Charles Spurgeon, who was just known as an evangelist. He's like my favorite preacher, and he was this great evangelistic preacher. And he had many, many thousands of converts. And he would get converts almost every week when he preached in his church. And one day, a, a pastor was saying to, a fellow pastor, a younger guy, was saying to Spurgeon, 
about how many years he had, um, how many years it had been since he had had a convert in his own ministry. And he was discouraged by that. And so Spurgeon replied, my brother, do you really expect God to save someone each and every time you preach? No, replied the pastor. Why then, said Spurgeon, it's little wonder you see no converts. <laughs> he kind of <laughs> twisted the knife a little there. Yes, on one hand, you can't expect somebody to fall to their knees in repentance every time you share the gospel because that's all up to the Lord. But I do think that we need to approach our evangelism with expectation. And we need to come expecting great things from God, praying for people to be saved, praying for opportunity, and then praying for fruit and trusting that God, this is what God wants. This is what he's sending us to do. And I can tell you, there's, there's no more exhilarating feeling than presenting the gospel and having somebody repent and embrace Christ and become a new creature, sometimes right in front of your eyes. So you don't have to be a good salesman. You don't have to love books or chemicals. You just need to love Jesus and go tell someone about him this week. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, it is a joy for us to, to think of who you are and what you've done for us. And I, I pray that you would stir in us this very week an evangelistic zeal for the gospel. I pray for opportunities that people might ask us and approach us or that you would guide us to people that need to hear the gospel. I pray for boldness and clarity that you would help us to speak the words we need to say. And then we pray for fruit, Lord, that you would give us souls so we can grow our church by bringing unbelievers to you, to the cross, so that we can disciple them and present them mature in Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Okay, well, I have been asked by some of the nursery people to not go as long with the Q&A as I usually do. So we might have a f fewer questions or shorter answers tonight. We'll see how we do. Are, are there any questions tonight? We still have like 15 minutes. <laughs> yes, Nanny. Yeah, yeah, the Francis of Assisi quote is, isn't an encapsulation of his ministry anyway, but it's just a quote that people use. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Kim, you had a question earlier on. About Samson. Yeah, yeah, about Samson. What was it again? Um, when Samson's parents didn't know that it was from the Lord. Right. Yeah, the way you asked it at home was easier to answer. Um, okay, but I'll, I'll summarize what she's saying. is In the Samson sermon, remember, um, we're in Judges 13 in our evening service, and Samson chooses to um, marry a girl who's not Jewish. She, I mean, Jewish is an anachronistic term, but she's not Israelite. And so his parents say, why don't you find a girl among your relatives or our people, N not one of these Philistines. And they had received direct revelation from the angel of the Lord that he was being raised up to be the deliverer to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines, and now he wants to marry them. And they were, they were suitably distressed by that, but then the narrator places this great line in there that says, but they did not know that it was of the Lord. And the point I made in the sermon is that sometimes things happen, like in our life, we have loved ones that make foolish decisions maybe in the person that they're dating or maybe how, whatever they spend their money on or what they're doing with their time. 
And we are distressed by that because we've raised him better than that. But we need to remind ourselves that God is in control of those things and that these things are of the Lord. Um, and so Kim's question was sort of, but they had been told by the angel that this was of the Lord. But remember, the angel gave very little information, very little details, just like we usually get very little details about what God wants. He tells us the broad strokes. So they were said, Samson will deliver his people from the Philistines. But they weren't told that the way God was going to use it is the folly and the sin of your son is going to make him penetrate into their society and then he's going to go ballistic and kill them. So they didn't know any of that. They just thought he was going to grow up to be this Messiah of Israel and now he's starting to date the, the unbeliever next door and they're, they're upset about that. So we just have to remember that sometimes if we were writing the script, we would make things a lot cleaner and try to make our heroes, you know, less like a knucklehead like Samson. But, but the truth is God uses flawed people because that's all there is. And he can use even our foolish decisions and our sinful decisions towards accomplishing his will, which we will see play out in the next few chapters. Did that answer the question? Great. Yes, Tricia. Oh, boy. Good question. What would be the starting point for sharing the gospel with the Jehovah's Witness? If you deny him? Oh, if you died tonight, what would happen? Yeah, I'm thinking about that because there's, there's someone in my life I need to share the gospel with who's a Jehovah's Witness. So I've been thinking about this myself, and I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a, a good answer for you what the starting point is. I know that if a stranger comes up to me, if a Jehovah's Witness comes up to me and knocks on the door and wants to talk, Usually, I will, the question I'll ask them is, what do you do with your sin? And the other question I'll ask is, am I ever guaranteed um, to be with Jesus in heaven? Because they believe that there's only 144,000 that go to heaven, and those 144,000 have already been chosen. So no Jehovah's Witness is going to go to heaven. None, none who are alive that you're going to meet. And certainly not me if I convert to Jehovah's Witness. So... So I try to show them by asking those questions, like, your religion gives me no hope. Um, and then I pivot the conversation towards my relationship with Christ. Because they believe in Jesus, they, they believe the New Testament, but they, they believe that Jesus was created and that he's not God. They don't believe in the Trinity. So they'll go to the verse uh, in Colossians that says he was the firstborn of all creation. And they don't know what they're talking about, because the word there for firstborn, prototokos, in the Greek, means the preeminent one so like jacob is the firstborn even though he was the secondborn why because he's the one that gets the blessing so that's how that word is used in scripture the prototokos is the person who gets the inheritance and that's jesus who gets the inheritance of all creation not that he was the first one that god created but anyway i don't go into that discussion with them because they know their stuff and they, they think we're false teachers so I usually just ask them is there a hope of me being with jesus in heaven and they'll say no and then i'll go off on a tangent about how much I love Jesus and just what he's done in my life and who he is and all the stuff I say about him is stuff that they know is in the Bible so they can't disagree with it and I just try to show them that I have a relationship with him and that, that I love him and then that hopefully just sticks with them because they don't have that 
And the closest, the reason I do that is because the first time I ever did this, I was in seminary and two Jehovah's Witnesses came to our door. I, I shared a house with a bunch of other seminary students. And so we were just learning Greek and stuff. And so we were like, oh, fresh meat. You know, so we invite them in. We sit them down. We pull out our Greek Bibles and everything. And we're like talking theology. And there's this young guy and an older guy. And very soon the young guy stopped talking. And the older guy took over. And he knew his stuff way better. And we were going back and forth. And, and the young guy was just kind of sitting there. And eventually the guy said, okay, we're done. Um, and then I, I just said, I just can't get over the fact that you're offering me something that doesn't allow me to be with Jesus forever. And I started talking about Jesus and about heaven, and I was like getting like really emotional, and I was like getting teary-eyed. And at the end, when we got to the door, they turned around and the guy said, I can see that you believe very strongly what you believe and that you love Jesus, and I'll need to think about that. And he walked away. And I was like, that was the only time it wasn't conflict where I realized, oh, that's what broke through to him was the realization that you can actually have a relationship with your creator, which they don't have. But I'm still working on a good way. If it's a person that you know well, then I always feel like I'm just insulting them. Because <laughs> at some point I want to be like, you know you're in a cult, right? You know that, right? I mean, you know you've been brainwashed, right? No? Okay. Just go read the Bible from cover to cover and see what it says. But you can't say that if you know the person. Great question. Anyone else? Yeah, Deb. So I don't think so. Let me just repeat the question. So uh, in Genesis, is that Genesis 5? Genesis 4, verse 26, where it says that Seth begot Enosh. Um, and that's when the people began to call on the name of the Lord. And, but then, I was with you until then, and then you said, is that where the priesthood of Melchizedek started? Priests appeared into religious yeah, practice. So the priesthood as we know, so good question. Um, when did priests get introduced into the religious practice? Well, let's, let's start with the priests we know for certain. The Levitical priests started with Moses. So um, Moses introduced the, in the book of Leviticus, you have a tribe of the Israelites that would be a go-between between Yahweh and the other tribes. And within that tribe, there were certain men who would be priests um, who could function in the temple, and then there would be a high priest, one high priest, and he had to be not only from the line of Levi, but the line of Aaron within the line of Levi. Okay, so that was all established by Moses. And the tricky part comes that Jesus is said to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. But you can only be a priest if you're the line of Levi, and Jesus was the line of Judah, because you have to be a king from the line of Judah, you have to be a priest from the line of Levi, so they had to come from different tribes. So the way Scripture reconciles that in the book of Hebrews is he explains that there are multiple orders of priesthoods. The Levitical priesthood is not the only priesthood. There's also the Melchizedekan priesthood, and then there's another one actually, Zadok is uh, another line as well in the Millennial Kingdom. So you can be a priest from any of those lines and still be a priest. As far as when that started, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why it would have started when people called on the name of the Lord in Genesis 4. 
um, by the time you get to Genesis 15, and Abraham's calling, and Abraham meets Melchizedek and tithes to him and treats him like he's a representative of God, there's something already established there. This is why I haven't preached the book of Hebrews yet, because of Melchizedek. When I get that figured out, I'll preach that book, and then I'll have a real answer for you. Good. Any other questions? Yes, Tremaine. What do Mormon people believe about Jesus? And what? Their version of God. Okay, so what Mormon um, people believe is that Jesus is a created being, that he is the brother of Satan. Um, The God that we would call God created Jesus. And that we as human beings, if we become Mormon, um, can work ourselves up to also be gods like Jesus. So Jesus was a human being who became a god, um, like a, a powerful being, just like Satan, and just like we can also become. So that's, that's a very basic view. Mormons believe what they believe because they, uh, a man in the 1800s, Joseph Smith, claimed to get a revelation from an angel that he called Moroni, a little gold angel on top of their temples. That's why they're called Mormons, um, because of that angel. And he just claimed that the angel taught him all sorts of stuff that's not in the Bible. And for some reason, some people believed him, and they still do. Also, you can marry multiple wives. Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, anything else? Yes, Emery. question. So let me summarize it. Emery's saying that, um, so when God cast Satan and the demons out of heaven, um, he didn't cast them into the lake of fire directly. In fact, they function on earth, in, in, a, in the spiritual realm on earth. Um, but they will be, according to Revelation, a final destruction and sentencing of all of the demons and Satan, where they, death and Hades are put into the lake of fire and that's, that's kind of what we think of as hell, you know, the, the place that there's burning forever. Um, and so, but his question, which is interesting, is th- did God delay that justice because he was being merciful to those fallen angels or because they hadn't deserved all of that punishment yet? Is that a good summary of what you're asking? Great question. So I don't think either of those is the reason. And now we're just kind of we're stepping outside of Scripture and we're just going into opinion here, but uh, when I was writing my book, A Visitor's Guide to Hell, I I addressed this topic and kind of thought about it, so this is my opinion on that. I think that the reason when God cast Satan and demons out of heaven, which would have happened shortly after creation, um, that he didn't immediately just cast them all into the lake of fire and be done with them, is because he wanted to introduce evil, we wanted to allow evil to be introduced, let's put it that way, allow evil to be introduced into mankind and into a cursed earth so that he could save people out of their sin and give glory to the Son. 
and show forgiveness and all those things that we would never know about him. So the demons in what they were doing were in a sense playing into God's hand because remember God created the world to show his glory. So the, another way to ask the question is just why does God let bad things happen if he's in control of all things? Why doesn't he, like as soon as somebody does something wrong, just go back in time, make it that it didn't happen or whatever, you know, or Satan sins, boom, cast him out so that there's no, why does he allow the snake into the garden? And the, the model of explaining that, the topic there is called theodicy, if you're going to look it up. And the, the model of theodicy that I subscribe to is called the best of all worlds, meaning that God looked at all the contingencies of all the ways his glory could put, be put on display, and he decided the best way to put most of his character, all of his character on display, was to allow the depths of evil and suffering and depravity in the universe that we now see so that we fully understand how much he loves us by taking that upon himself um, and so that he can give all the glory to Christ for undoing that. So, for example, before Satan fell, there's a whole side of God that nobody even knew existed. So they didn't know he was loving because they didn't know how much that he would love somebody to the point of sending his son. They didn't know that he was just because no one had ever done anything wrong. They didn't know that he was merciful because there was nothing to forgive. They didn't know that he was gracious because there was no one who didn't deserve his mercy yet. You know, all those things. So that's like all the things that we sing about God and how great he is, nobody in the universe even knew existed about God until there was sin and suffering. Now we know all those things about him. So that's why he made the world was to put that on display. So we sometimes, we get stuck on the whole, man, there's bad things happening and I'm suffering and I'm going through this and it's not fair and look what's happening to these children or look what's happening to these innocent people, whatever it is. But we have to back up and look at the whole grand scheme of all of the future billions of years that are still coming and how this short time on earth is putting on display attributes of God that he will then be praised for for all of eternity. So back to your question. If the demons were judged immediately the world wouldn't be as bad as it is. And he wants it to be this bad. But they're going to get it. 